One of the things that I have talked about before, if you've been around, is that when I meet people for the first time, we're playing a game, but they don't know it. And uh, the game is a long-cherished game of how long can we talk and get to know each other before you find out what I do for a living. That's the game that we're playing. And the reason why I play this game with people is because uh, the longer we can talk and actually just kind of get to know each other, uh, is, the dynamic is less intense in the change when they find out, oh, I'm, I'm a pastor. And some of you, you know, as Christians, you, you, somebody finds out you're a Christian and like that moment, suddenly the dynamic changes. Because see, if, if I were an engineer, and we got a lot of engineers that are part of our community, if I were an engineer, for example, I would never hear oh, I'm sorry for my language. I didn't know you were an engineer. Uh, or, you know I, 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 you know, I used to go wherever it is that engineers gather during the week, but I don't go anymore. I really need to get back. Or, you know, I'd never hear, hey, I'll, I'll come visit your shop some Sunday. You know, and then nine and a half times out of ten, they don't, you know, show up. And then we have that awkward moment at Starbucks, you know, like, oh, hey, I've been meaning to get there. But, you know, if I were an engineer, none of that would ever happen. Uh, and the big reason... Uh, you know, th this whole dynamic happens is uh, because once somebody, especially when they find out what I do, that, that I'm a pastor in ministry, uh, I'm always going to hear a story. Uh, you know, so I'm going to hear a story and, you know, uh, and there's several out there about like these amazing experiences with Christians or church or whatever it is, but about nine times out of ten, it's not a positive story. Uh, and the positive ones are out there for sure. But again, the majority are negative ones. And some of you, again, you have experienced this as well. Somebody, you know, if you're a Christian or if you like be extra brave, say I'm a follower of Jesus and they find out. And then if there's time for a conversation, you're going to hear a story or something about their past experience. And uh, something for many of them that caused them to disconnect from church or disconnect from a community. And for many of them, ultimately, then that led to them just disconnecting from their faith altogether. And now they're just kind of doing life. And on top of that, uh, while I, I've witnessed uh, some of, again, the most amazing acts of kindness and generosity and compassion from Christians and churches. I've unfortunately also witnessed uh, churches afflict deep mental and spiritual wounds on people. I sat in a church years ago. It was packed out on a Wednesday night because a large enough contingent of people that were part of that church community uh, found out that when the senior pastor had taken the high schoolers on a float trip with some other volunteers and a canoe had gotten tipped and he got whacked in the head with an edge of the edge of the canoe, uh, that it just kind of reflexively and the pain came out, he said, damn. And so as a result, this contingent got together and they were going to ask for the pastor's resignation or else fire him that night. And so I sit in this packed out house. And again, other, other than like this one thing, you know, and some of you are thinking they need to fire me because I said it in from the front. But, uh, <laughs> you know, this pastor, he, like he was amazing. He was like just, just, just this amazing, kind-hearted, loving guy. But man, he said a swear word and he's got he's to go. Or I think of a single dad uh, that, you know, new to the city, began attending a church, and after a little while decided he liked the church and decided he wanted to uh, serve, and his background was with music and kids, and they said, uh, oh, this is really exciting, but then they found out that he was divorced, and they said, oh, well, you can attend, but we can't have you serving as a divorced person with kids or in music. You know, maybe you can hand out bulletins. Uh, or many years ago, there was a psychologist that actually went overseas to connect with missionaries specifically to assess the effect of uh, depression and anxiety experienced among missionaries. 
And what he experienced was so discouraging and frustrating. After he returned, he summarized the philosophy of the group that he had gone over with in saying these words, the only army that shoots its wounded is the Christian army. So this morning, we're, we're continuing this conversation that we began last week on Christian confusion. And this morning is entitled Quitters. And one of the most notable quitters in recent years is a woman by the name of Anne Rice. Uh, some of you may be familiar with the name. Anne Rice has written over 50 books, which have sold over two, uh, 100 million copies. So she's one of the most successful authors out there. Uh, most of her writing over the years focused on the metaphysical, uh, vampires, interview with a vampire with Brad Pitt that came out in the 90s, for those of us old enough to know that. Uh, this was from one of her early, earlier books, The Vampire Chronicles. Uh, Anne was raised in the church and until she was 18, but when she turned 18, she said in her own words, she left the church totally. She went on to pursue her literary career. She was wildly successful. Uh, now she's been everywhere. She's known all over the world. She's famous. Uh, she's had some bumps along the way. She's had some tragedies in her family. And then in her late 50s, she came back to her faith and back to church after being away as an atheist for many years. And when she came back, she came back uh, in her own words. Uh, when she did, uh, she came back and committed her writing skills to the Lord. Those were her own words. And so she began to write a trilogy of the life of Jesus. Uh, she began writing a fictional book about when Jesus was a child uh, called Christ Our Lord Out of Egypt. I read this book about eight years ago. It's a fictional book, basically like what might it have been like as Jesus was growing up and he turned like stones into doves and trick his brothers and, you know, did he do miracles for fun and those kind of things. And, and, she, and she's clear that it's fiction, but in the end, in the author's notes, she explains how she came back to her faith and how she came to re-embrace Jesus. And how that happened, to some extent, is that she's uh, a uh, historian. She loves to do research like crazy. She's always been fascinated, had always been fascinated with the history of Judaism. Because there were a lot of religions that didn't survive antiquity. So part of her thought, like, why, why Judaism? Why did it survive? Why the Jews? So she began to research Judaism, and she discovered a piece of history that she wasn't aware of. And that was uh, the Jewish wars. What she discovered was in 66 AD, uh, the Jews rebelled against the Romans. And this went on for about four or five years. It was called the First Jewish-Roman War. It culminated in all those being hostile towards Rome, being holed up in Jerusalem. And uh, the 10th Legion of Rome surrounded and laid siege to the city. And an ancient secular historian named Josephus he gives this one in, in great detail, one of the most fascinating pieces of history. I actually read this in college, and sometimes it's hour by hour. And as Anne began to study the siege and the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, uh, she learned Rome finally broke through the final wall. Uh, they stormed in, they burned down the temple, they crucified literally hundreds of Jews on scaffolding all around the city, the walls of the city. It was a horrific time in the life of the Jews. And she was just really fascinated with this part of history. She'd studied all these resources. And then she thought, what, what other sources could tell me more about the Jewish wars? And she thought, aha, the New Testament. Because she'd always been taught, as some of you have been taught, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written many, many, many years after the actual events, which is why these miracle myths could end up growing because it takes a long, long time to turn a story into a miracle because people just keep adding to the story and adding to the story, and finally enough time passes by that there's nobody around that can dispute what actually 
happen. They're all dead and gone. So she assumed if I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, well, certainly there will be something in the Gospels about the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so she reads these four books, uh, and it wasn't there. And she couldn't understand why. And then she, she thought, well, why is there nothing in here about Jerusalem being sacked and the temple being destroyed and all these Jews being crucified on scaffolding? And then she thought, well, maybe it hasn't happened yet which meant Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written before 70 AD, which means that the eyewitnesses were still alive. And so this means there really wasn't enough time for these stories to become fables. So she thought, well, maybe this actually represents historical events. And then she discovered there were some really smart Christians in academia, and she began to meet with them and read their books, and her eyes were open to this whole idea of scholarship or this whole arena of scholarship that she wasn't aware of before that she didn't know anything about. And then she ended up re-embracing her faith. Well, then she wrote another book called Called Out of Darkness, A Spiritual Confession. And it's her story of her coming back to her faith. And in the paragraphs that I'm going to read you, she addresses some of the issues that some of you and certainly people around you wrestle with today. Here's what she says. He, God, knew how or why everything happened. He knew the disposition of every single soul. He wasn't going to let anything happen by accident. Nobody was going to hell by mistake. This was his world, all this. He had complete control of it. His justice, his mercy were not our justice and our mercy. What folly to even imagine such a thing. And for some of you, that's, that's huge right there. Because you struggled with the justice of God. And Anne would respond to you, hey, your God's too small. Why would you get hung up over the justice of God? It's God's justice, not yours. She continues, I didn't, I didn't have to know how he was going to save the unlettered and the unbaptized, or how he would redeem the conscientious heathen who had never spoken his name. I didn't have to know how my gay friends would find their way to redemption, or how my hardworking secular humanist friends could or would receive the power of his saving grace. I didn't have to know why good people suffered agony or died in pain. He knew. And it was his knowing that overwhelmed me, and it was his knowing that became completely real to me, and why should I remain apart from him just because I couldn't grasp all of this? He could grasp it. Now, that's profound. In these few paragraphs, she's just tackled and addressed some of the primary issues that many of us have struggled with, some of us for years. And you know what her answer is? Hey, your God's too small. Your God's too small. Why would I remain separated from God because, just because I can't figure God out? He's bigger than that. Well, time goes by. She re-embraces her faith. She's kind of following the whole Christian thing for about 10 years. And then July of 2010, she quit. She quit Christianity. She posted this on her Facebook page. Today, I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being Christian or being part of Christianity. It's like, wait, like, how do you do that? You're saying you're going to be committed to Christ like Jesus, but not Christianity. Like, how can, can you do that? It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. It's like, I love Jesus. I just don't like the quarreling. I love Jesus. I just don't love the hostility. 
I, I, I don't like the disputatious. See, some of you, you don't even know what that means. That's how smart she is. So I, I, I had to practice saying it just so I wouldn't sound like an idiot. So in, in other words, I, I, I want to follow Jesus. I'm, I'm going to follow Jesus, but I don't want to be a part of whatever that is. I, like, I, and some of you, you felt that way. And she's not done. For 10 years, I've tried. I've tried. I've failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow nothing else. So, okay, so your conscience informed by following Jesus won't allow you to be a Christian. And I'd say that that seems really confusing, but for some of us, it's really not all that confusing. Here's what she says. My faith in Christ is central to my life. My conversion from a pessimistic atheist lost in a world I didn't understand to an optimistic believer in a universe created and sustained by a loving God is crucial to me. In other words, I, I've been redeemed. I'm a new person. I see the world differently. And I don't want to go back to my unbelieving, atheistic, pessimistic ways. But following Christ doesn't mean following his followers. Christ is infinitely more important than Christianity and will always be, no matter what Christianity is, has been, or might become. And in an interview, after she had posted these, these comments, she said, my commitment to Christ remains at the heart and center of my life. Transformation in Him is radical and ongoing. But I feel now that I am called to be an outsider for Him, to step away from the words Christian or Christianity is something that my conscience demands of me. In the name of Christ, I quit Christianity and being Christian, amen. And then, in other words, I can't continue to follow Jesus the way I understand what it means to follow Jesus and associate with anything that has the word Christian or Christianity attached to it. And if you're like me, there have been times along the way that you felt that way as well. I mean, some of you, you've been in church all your life, or you've, uh, and you've got young adult friends, or you've got a teenage or a young adult son or daughter, maybe 18, 22, 25, 30-year-old son or daughter, and, and they said, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of fed up with Christianity. And they bring up things, and you can't argue with them. And they bring up observations, and you're like, you're, you're kind of right. I mean, and now you've got a word. They're disputatious. And, so, and, and you can't argue their points with your young adult friends or with your young adult children. But you also don't want them to abandon everything that they've grown up with or what you've taught them to believe. And what's interesting is when Ann, she went public with this, she, she just gets deluged with all these emails and messages of people and writing her and saying, you've joined us. You're one of us. And she's like, I accidentally joined a group. I didn't even know all these people are out here. I mean, there's so many people, like, they love Jesus, and they actually want to follow Jesus, but they don't want to be associated with the name or the term Christian, because here's what we discovered last week, that Christian is used only three times in the New Testament. It was a derogatory term used by people on the outside looking in to describe this group of people. Again, it would be like redneck or geek, though you can make a lot of money at geek if you put it on the side of a car now. But, but over time, this name stuck. It was started as a derogatory term, but then Christians, in a, in a way, uh, followers of Jesus just kind of sort of embraced it, said, if, I'll be persecuted as a Christian. But the problem was, the problem with the word Christian is it can mean anything you want it to. See, th this is why there are Christians all throughout history on both sides of every political issue. There are Christians on both sides of every uh, legal issue, 
financial issue. There are Christians on both sides of everything we would consider a moral issue. This is why nations that are predominantly Christians can go to war with each other. Maybe you don't know this, but this is why Adolf Hitler could say, we tolerate no one in our ranks who attacks the ideas of Christianity. Our movement is Christian. It's why during the civil rights movement, you had churches that were on both sides because you can basically make Christian anything you want it to be. And when you open up the New Testament, you'll find nothing to contradict your definition of Christian because it's not defined. That's the problem. So last week, we actually opened the New Testament, and we found that Jesus referred to his followers as something else, and his followers referred to themselves as something else. What did they call themselves? Disciples. Now see, this is a problematic word because as long as you're Christian, you can pretty much do and believe anything you want. But if you decide to be one of these, a disciple, this is so well-defined, it will shake and rock your entire world. It'll just shake your whole experience as a follower of Jesus. So last week, we opened the New Testament and we asked the question, okay, so what's a disciple? And to to that answer, Jesus says, here it is, if you forget Everything else, I'm not going to give you 10 commandments, I just have one, a new one, and this is the most important one. Now, before we move forward into what I'm going to say, I want to say something especially to the men. When we get to the topic that we're talking about today, and I'm going to, again, talking especially to the men, the problem is when we hear that Jesus said this, this is what we picture. This was not Jesus. First off, he was not a white guy. Let's go with that. And he didn't have blue eyes. So we, we can just assume that. But, but this isn't it. See, we, we hear these words, what I'm about to go into, and it just seems so passive. And it seems so soft. And this is what we picture. And this isn't him. And this is important. If you want to understand what Jesus meant by what he said, then you watch what he did. Men, remember this. This is a 30-something-year-old guy that marched into a city knowing that he was going to be arrested, tortured, and crucified. And you wouldn't do that. This is a guy who grew up seeing rotting corpses on Roman crosses. This wasn't something he read about in a book or saw. He saw it, he heard it, he smelled it, and he knew that to walk into Jerusalem meant that he would end up on one of those Roman crosses. And he walked into Jerusalem anyway. And he had several occasions in which he could have recanted what he he believed or who he claimed to be, and he would have been set free, but he wouldn't do it. And he knew that there would be no jury, no recourse, no attorney. He would be railroaded and put to death. And men, he walked into the jaws of that alone. Because his closest friends and followers, one betrayed him, and the rest abandoned him. And he walked into the jaws of this alone. So before you're tempted to discount what he says as soft, you remember who said it. And if you want to understand what Jesus meant by what he said, then you watch what he did. So he gathers these guys together. He says, guys, if you forget everything else, don't forget this. By this... By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if 
you love one another. I thought it was what we believed. Yeah, you got to believe some things, but nobody can see what you believe. If you forget everything else, if you don't memorize any verses, just remember, here's how they're going to know. Not by what you believe, not even simply by how you behave. And unfortunately, especially in Western Christianity, that's how we've defined Christian, is by how you behave. He said, no, no. It's by how well you love one another. And then approximately 55 years later, after Jesus says this, John, who gives us the gospel of John, he's now an old man. He's seen a lot. He uh, saw or heard about Jerusalem being sacked. He heard about thousands and thousands of of Jews that were crucified and murdered, some by their own people. He knew the temple had been destroyed once and for all. And now he's an old man. He heard about Peter, who was arrested and taken to Rome. And by tradition, it was understood, believed that he was crucified upside down. He lives knowing that the Apostle Paul was also arrested and taken to Rome and then taken outside the city and beheaded. He's seen emperors come and go. He's seen the Roman Empire change. He's seen bloodshed like you and I can't even imagine. And at this point, he is one of the only ones left. All of the other apostles, all of his closest friends, they're either they're dead or he doesn't have a clue where they're at. They've either been murdered, dispersed, he doesn't know. And for whatever reason, God had preserved his life, and now he's an old man. And he sits down to write a letter to, to Christians, that have, to followers of the way, followers of Jesus that have been dispersed all through the Roman Empire. And he can write anything he wants. I mean, this is John. This is John that took in Mary, the mother of Jesus, after, after the crucifixion. He can write anything he wants, and here's what he writes. He writes, dear friends, or literally dear beloved ones, Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. In other words, the key characteristic, the way that you know somebody's a God person, John says it's how well they love. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, here's why this is important because, again, context is king. John is writing this in in his context. So John is either lying or he's mistaken, or God is, in his essence, love. Because it's like, okay, John, I, I got a question. Did you see what happened to Jerusalem? Yeah. How many friends have you lost? I've lost count. You heard what happened to Peter? Yeah. And Paul? Yeah. We heard Matthew was burned at the stake. Yeah, I, I heard that too. And God is love? I mean, that, that Jesus and the love, like that was a long time ago. How can you believe that? Because this is how God showed his love, and this is so important among us. John's saying, listen, it doesn't matter how old I get, I get, let me take you back. I saw what Jesus did. This wasn't something that I read or heard about. This happened among us. A few of us were there and we saw it. I will never doubt the love of God because of what I saw. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son, into the world that he might live, we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Little pause. Us, our, this means you and me and everyone you're eyeball to eyeball with at any point where your life crosses paths with them uh, in life or on social media. All of these folks are people that God loves and he sent his son for. 
as an atoning sacrifice. The student who sits next to you at class, that coworker that just drives you crazy, uh, your mother-in-law, seriously, she's an us, uh, she's an our, uh, she, your boss, uh, the, the people that don't do what your homeowners association says they should do, uh, your, your, your teacher, the people that you work with, the people you pass every day, the people that cut you off in traffic, the people you cut off in traffic, uh, store cashiers, the waitress, the barista that serves your co- coffee, the person that you speak to uh, on the co- when you finally have pressed about 800 numbers and you get to customer service, you've got a human, they're an us, they're, they're an our And as for John, this isn't theory. He saw it happen. And all these years later, he says, I'm just as convinced as ever. Jesus was the Son of God who came to be the sacrifice for sin. So, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And this little Greek word that's translated ought is like a financial term. It's a a term of indebtedness. There's a debt-debtor relationship in the gospel between you and every single person you ever meet, and then between you and God. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Meaning, since God loved me, I owe it to God to love you. I owe it to God to love you. And since God loved you, you owe it to God to love me. And every, every time you act unlovable and I'm tempted to react in kind, I go, no, 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 because of how God loved me. That's my motive. That's how I'm going to love you because God chose to love me even when I was unlovable. That there's a sense where I'm indebted, I'm indebted to God. And it's not, not such that if I don't pay it back or pay it forward, that you know, God's going to get me you know, or he's going to punish me. It's, it's, it's like if you've ever gotten really, really good news and you're just so pumped up and you know, maybe you're a teenager or whatever, and then your brother or sister does something really annoying, but you're so pumped up about this other thing. It's like, ah, oh, it's, it's not that big a deal. You know? I didn't really like that shirt. You know, I didn't like my car anyway whatever it was, you know. It's like no big deal because it's like the thrill and the excitement just overwhelms it. Or if you were like me, and I know a lot of you were as a kid, and there was something you really, really wanted, and you're pretty sure your parents would say no, it was going to be kind of an iffy proposal, what would you do? You would wait until they were in a really, really good mood. Because then you would go and hope that good mood would overwhelm their good sense, and they're like, yeah, do whatever, you know. It's just, you know, and it's kind of that, that idea that God, because of what he's done for me, like, I, things are so great, I'm so thankful, like, it's okay, it's okay. And that joy just overwhelms it. That love, it's like, Chad, in light of that joy, in light of what God has done for you, Jesus is saying, now, I want you to go and I want you to love everyone that says that they follow me. And I want you to love others in such a way that people go, wow, look at the way they love I want you to love people in such a way that, that your whole community lives this, that we owe it to God to love one another. And I want you to love people in such a way that no one will ever say about my followers again that they are quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and a deservedly infamous group. I want this to go away, and I know you want this too. I want this to be eradicated. I want this to be erased from the experience of humanity. But the only way for that to happen is for you and I, for those of us, at least those of us that claim to follow Jesus, to take seriously this command that Jesus gave to love one another as I have loved you. Because Anne probably would not have quit if we had gotten just this one command right. 
there's a sense in which maybe we all need to kind of quit Christianity and once again become disciples. Because I don't think many people quit because, wow, they sure loved me well. You know, there was just way too much love, way too much unconditional love. I just can't deal with it. So irritating. You know, he, or he just, he just forgave me. Or she just pardoned me. They don't hold it against me or they heard about my past and it just seems like it's a non-issue. I just don't think people are inclined to quit that. I mean, can you imagine if suddenly, like I said last week, I, I gave this challenge that just for the next 10 days, or maybe even just a month, but just 10 days, what if like no more Christianity, we were just going to be disciples and we're going to operate on this, answering this question, what does love require of me? And then act on that. What if we just went to being disciples for a year and then after that we can go back to our disputatious, quarrelsome ways? See, and, but the thing is, and when I say this, I just want you to know, I'm with you. I realize this is counterintuitive. In fact, I was tempted to have you, for those of you who were here last Sunday, say, okay, I gave this 10-day challenge for 10 days. You could start on Monday and put off a day if you want to, but like for 10 days, every interaction before you speak or act or react or whatever, first I'm going to ask myself, what does love require of me? I was tempted to ask you to raise your hands how many of you did that, but I thought it would be really embarrassing because even for myself, and I've got it on my arm, and so I can remind myself, but because, and I look back on the last you know, week, and like I see these moments, I go, oh man, I, I had this opportunity. And I, I just missed it. Because it's just so counterintuitive. Because our, our intuition, our nature, the natural is like, what's in it for me? Or I've got, I'm busy. I got things to do. And I just see so many opportunities that I miss. Because again, it doesn't come naturally. But this is what Jesus is calling us to. And the reason why we talk about it so much is because we're, we've, we've still got a long way to go. Because it's like anything else worthwhile. It requires continued practice. And anything in life that, that, that you hope to master, it just takes regular effort. It takes regular practice. And the interesting thing, because I've had the opportunity to kind of delve into kind of the, the, the world and neurology and all of that, but as you do something repeatedly, you are literally beginning to rewire your brain. Paul was so ahead of his time when he talked about being tr be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And one of the ways that you do that is by establishing a new pattern and then just each day you do it again, you do it again, and you are being transformed. So what would happen in this city, our community, or in, maybe even in your family? If we could get this right, I'll tell you what would happen because it happened before. And we're going to talk about this uh, over the next two weeks. So you really don't want to m miss the next two weeks. The first, people would not feel coerced, but they would feel drawn to the faith that you have. They wouldn't feel coerced, but they would be drawn to Jesus. It's like, I, I don't feel like someone's trying to force me or lock me out. Rather, they treat me and others in such a way there's just something about them that, that draws me in. The other strange thing about being around these Jesus followers is sometimes I, I do feel guilty. Uh, I feel guilty because I'm not as honest as they are. And I'm telling you, she messed up. And before I could even go and talk to her about it, she was like in my office or came to see you and said, hey, I just need you to know I messed up. Or, or he's just so honest. I mean, he came and showed me a mistake that he made. I, didn't, I, I don't even know that I would have caught it. 
And it's like nobody does that. In fact, not only does nobody do that, I'm not sure I would have done that. And I feel a little guilty. You know, I, I talk to them about their relationship, and man, the way they do relationship, it's better than the way I do relationship. And kind of, I'm around these people and I feel a little guilty, but I don't feel condemned. And it's odd. And, and then these, these husbands and wives, it's like they're fighting together for their marriage. And I don't do that in my marriage. And I heard about how generous they are. I mean, people who have so little and yet they continue to give. And I'm so glad that they're in my community. I feel a little bit guilty because I'm not that generous. But I don't feel like they condemn me. You see, for most of us, that's how we came into the faith, right? Because we were in relationship with someone, or we knew someone, or we knew a group of individuals, we met some people, we met a community, and we were just like drawn in, or there was somebody that was part of our family, and there was something about them. We were just drawn in. But here's why it doesn't happen as much as it should. Because the problem is that we settle for being Christians, or we settle for our brand of Christianity. We don't play well with others. John would say this, you give up, give up your leverage and culture and society by trying to power up and using boycotts and you vote for only one political party and that's your identity, identity and we're going to criticize those that don't. You give up your leverage when you opt for anything other than love. Jesus love. As I have loved you, love one another kind of love. So here's why I just want you to think about this week, and again, every week is about how do you apply this? What would it look like for you to love the people around you as Jesus loved you? When you leave here today, what would it look like for you to love the people in your life the way that Jesus loved you? What would it look like in your marriage? For some of you, maybe you experience like, 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 like a lot, it's a super tense what would it look like to decide, you know what, I'm going to love my wife as Christ loved me. And to know what Jesus meant by that, then I look at what Jesus did, and then Jesus says, now men, go, go love your wives like that. Ladies, I'm, I'm going to love my husband because of the way God loved me, not based on whether or not he deserves it today, or I'm going to love my children. You know what a difference that would make? For those of you that are they're single and you're working up in your profession, you're in school, what would it look like to love your fellow students, your professors, your coworkers, whoever's seen, overseeing um, uh, just as you're starting into this career? What would it look like to love them the way Christ loves you? Let's just focus on that and watch how it changes the world around you and changes the people around you as you love them like that. Now next week, we're going to address very, something very important. Okay, we're to love one another. That's great. Got, that's enough work right there. But how are we supposed to react or, towards and treat those outside the faith? How are we to react towards and treat those who have rejected Christianity and Jesus? So be here next week for that. Let's pray. Father, I, we talk about it a lot. Here, I, I, and I ask that for every single one of us that we're here in the room, for those that are listening online, that, that God, that you would, by however it is that you do it, for some of us we'd say it's by your spirit, that you would get in the forefront of our mind, the people that are around us, that they desperately need our love. They need our sacrificial love. They need us to love them in spite of. 
It's a, and, and somehow you positioned us in such a way that we're the ones they need it from the most. And God, I, I pray over this next week that you would be, bring it to mind because God, we are clearly so distracted by screens and beeps and sounds and messenger and everything and social media and scrolling. And, and God, I, I pray that in the noise of all that, that you would break through. And help us to recognize these opportunities each day. We need your help to do it. It's the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.